Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who has a vast collection of vintage DC and Marvel comic books and ironically lives in Minnesota, where his favorite NBA team, the LA Lakers, originated, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, I am honored to have back on the podcast after a couple of years break, a gentleman who now has written five books, the fifth book coming out shortly. He is a retired physician with a platform he has rebranded himself Financial Success MD. Please help me welcome Dr. Corey Fawcett back well, to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Dave. It's uh, always a pleasure to talk with you. Same to you, sir. Same to you. Well, we were pre, pre-talking here before, before I hit the record button, and I was like, we're talking about good stuff. We need to get this started. Um, you know, that's my favorite part of the podcast is what we talk about before we turn on the recording and what we talk about after we turn <laughs> off the recording. Those are my, those are the funnest parts. I love it. That's good. Um, so since we last talked, you were just on the cusp of retiring, which I will link our past podcast into the show notes. We talked about real estate. So give us a, a handle, Dr. Fawcett, on what have you been up to in retirement and what has it been like for you? You know, um, I retired at age 54 and that was about three and a half years ago. And it was kind of, you know, what's really going to happen? You, you really don't know when you start. What will this be like in a few years? Well, I can tell you it was better than I expected. And I'm kind of wondering, why didn't I do this sooner? Mm. But if I did it sooner, I might have missed medicine, I think. I, I think the way I did it, um, I left my 20-year practice and went to part-time locums work where I slowly shrunk down the amount of time I was working until the last seven months of my career, I was only working one week a month. And then at that point, it was pretty easy to let go. And so I really didn't miss medicine after I retired, I was worried about that, mm-hmm. but that didn't happen. Uh, I, I had a new passion, you know, teaching personal finance to doctors and writing books. And so I was busy and I didn't really miss, miss medicine. And, and we went on to begin traveling, my wife and I. It was something I really wanted to do. And in the last three years, we've been to more than two dozen countries. Two dozen. Um, my wife and I hiked across Spain uh, last year, uh, 450 miles, a little stroll uh, <laughs> across Spain. That was uh, quite an endeavor. Was that that, uh, that, that path? Is it, it was like the, a mission path? At yes, one time? it's called the Camino de Santiago. And it's the road to St. Peter's Cathedral um, oh. in Santiago de Compostela uh, in northwest Spain. Uh, and all kinds of paths, you know, go there. I wrote, wrote a blog about that journey, uh, my fire adventure, because I would have never done something like that while I was working. So that, that was something that retirement has opened up to me is, is some options that a person wouldn't tend to do while they were still working. So when we did that adventure, for instance, we took off for Europe and we were in Europe for two months with my cell phone on airplane mode. And so 
that's not the kind of thing I would have done during my working years. And there's some adventures like that that we've been able to go on, uh, such as another one was a, a cruise that lasted more than a month. I probably wouldn't have done that during my working years. The longest vacation I ever took while I was working was three weeks. And so these, you know, eight week and four week and five week uh, vacations, uh, th those are adventures that just didn't happen back then. So and I've also started snowboarding. Snowboarding. So, because you live in uh, Oregon, I live, right? I live in Oregon, and it's kind of cold in the winter and rainy. Uh, and we hop in the motorhome, and we head down to Arizona and Southern California for nice weather uh, for January, February, and March. Uh, so this year we got home just in time for them to shut down traveling. <laughs> it was like, oh, great timing. We were actually coming home from our snowboarding trip to repack to take off to our trip to China. And so we get home to have a canceled trip to China. That, that just didn't happen. COVID kind of shut down all my traveling. We found ourselves gone half of the year. So six months out of the year, we were traveling the world. And, you know, that was a great adventure. And I think that's probably the biggest fun thing that's happened to me since I retired. And what's outside of going to Spain, which you mentioned, what, what's been your favorite other trip, you know, most memorable one that you've done in this time? My favorite trip was the uh, cruise uh, that we took uh, on the uh, east coast of South America and spent a week going up the Amazon River. Mm. And so that was like more than 30 days. I don't remember the exact uh, amount. But I learned some, a lesson on that trip that was amazing, that there's a difference between long cruises and short cruises. Mm -hmm. Now, I had been on lots of short cruises, less than 14 days. And the last one I had been on was a Panama Canal cruise. And after 14 days, I was kind of ready to be off of the boat. So I was a little leery about a 30-day cruise, you know, um, if in 15 time. days I was ready to be off the boat, what am I going to be like in 30 days? And it turned out to be the best cruise I'd ever been on because it is different. And the, the main difference is the people who take the short cruises are workers who are taking a vacation. And they are trying to cram everything they can into that vacation. And it's a real go, go, go atmosphere. Mm. Um, you know, when you get off the boat, there, there's people taking your pictures with some fancy thing that's local. And when you come back on the boat, there's 10,000 pictures to try and find yours buried in that picture somewhere. Uh, and they do that every stop. So on these long cruises, now these are retired people. They're not hurrying about anything. It's way more laid back and relaxing. The library is amazing because you can't take enough books with you to read for you know, a six month cruise, they have these great libraries. But when you'd get off the boat, there weren't people taking pictures of everybody. These guys don't want another picture of them in another port. Mm -hmm. So when we would come back, there would be like seven pictures up on the bulletin board. If you <laughs> took a picture today because a couple of people really did want something at that port. Uh, so it, it turned out to be a, an extremely different lifestyle, extremely different cruise. The entertainment was better. On a short cruise, you know, say a seven-day cruise, you're going to have that the house band, and they're going to perform four of the seven days. Mm -hmm. On a four-week cruise, you have the same house band, but they only perform once a week. 
That means six out of the seven shows each week are headliners that they brought onto the, to the boat. So the entertainment is bumped up a notch. Uh, so I, I just, that was the most memorable thing that I did was learning that long cruises are different. And I ran into one guy who's been on six world cruises. Wow. I asked him, well, how do you do your taxes? What do you do? Cause it was, we were trying to be back for tax time. He says, Oh, just always file an extension and I'll just take care of them whenever I happen to be home. I don't worry about taxes. Uh, I go, I go on the cruise. Mm. <laughs> and so I was planning my cruise around being home to get the taxes done. Mm. He just doesn't worry about it. <laughs> He'll get it done when he gets it done. And that was the whole attitude on the whole boat. Oh, I'll get it done when I get it done. <laughs> it was a great vacation. Very island, um, island driven. That's great. So fun. Like um, Maui time. Yeah. <laughs> get it done on Maui time. <laughs> well, certainly uh, right now we're recording this in, in June. I believe this podcast will end up coming out in, in late July, early August. And we've gone through this crazy year where we, uh, we had COVID starting to come out in January and it's like, well, maybe it's not going to be so bad. And of course it comes here and, and changes um, for a lot of people, what, what's happening for them. And I know you have been working really hard on this book, The Doctor's Guide to Navigating Financial Crisis, which is coming out here very, very, very soon. And uh, we've had kind of really doctors in one of two camps, right? We've had physicians that maybe are in the ER or um, internal medicine or whatever that are just crazy, amazing amazingly busy, you know, and, and um, never been busier, um, but they're getting paid and doing well. And then we have everybody else, you know, a lot of, lot of attendings that might, let's say an orthopedic surgeon and are elective surgeries, and they're barely working at all, um, if not working. And um, certainly it's, it's something that, that uh, we knew when we heard about, okay, it might affect hotels and, and um, restaurants, but uh, for doctors to have gotten hit this hard, I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on just thinking back on your career. Had you ever seen a time like this before? And, and second part of that, um, how, do, how do, will you suggest those two different groups navigate this time? Well, th we have a definite dichotomy. It's feast and famine. The ones who are feasting, well, they're just too busy working to worry about navigating this 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 time, <laughs> and financially they're going to do all right. But it's those guys in the famine, who always thought their job was secure as a physician. I mean, this was an eye opener for physicians that our jobs are not nearly as secure as we thought they were. Mm. You know, um, I think this will be a nice wake up call for people to get their finances in order. Because a lot of doctors have been flying by the seat of their pants. They make good income, so they just spend it because they're just going to make some more next month. And if they screw up, well, they'll just make some more later and take care of that. But I think they're learning that that might not happen all the time. And sometimes uh, things will happen to make a change. Now, I had something like this happen in my practice. Uh, it wasn't a global thing. It was very limited to our practice. Um, we were looking for a new surgeon to come in and we found two at once. Mm. 
And I was kind of the guy who goes over the finances of the group. And I told the group, I said, hey, well, wait a minute. We don't have the money to be bringing on two new surgeons at the same time. Because when you bring on a surgeon, you guarantee to pay them a salary, Mm -hmm. but they're not bringing in any money. Mm -hmm. It takes a while for that to ramp up. Mm-hmm. Cause the stuff you do today, you don't even collect for, you know, 60 to 90 days that, right. that money. Right. Uh, and you start out slower and you work your practice up cause no one's referring to you yet. So how are we going to take on two at once? And at the same time, we were adding a new service at our, our place to do ultrasound vein testing. So we had to buy an ultrasound machine and we were bringing on a new ultrasound tech and that business wasn't there yet. So, so we were adding three new components to our business at the same time. And I really said, there's not enough money for this. And everybody says, yeah, but we need to do it. So I literally went through about six months of not taking a paycheck because of that. Mm. And so I got to see firsthand. Now, fortunately, I had my financial act together. And, you know, it didn't really matter if I took a paycheck or not financially. Um, so I, it didn't hurt me too much, but some of my partners were, were really feeling that. Um, but to go six months with no paycheck and yet continue to work full time. Now that's not what the guys who lost their pay did this time. They had time off mm. and they didn't have any money coming in. I was still working full time and had no money coming in. So I did get a taste of what this situation can be like to suddenly lose your income. And it made me much more aware of that need for an emergency fund, the need to have real financial backup, the need to be debt free. Uh, That was one of the biggest difference between me and my partners is I didn't have any debt. So if I didn't take any income, it didn't really matter that much because I got enough, you know, cash in the bank to cover that. But if you have a lot of debt to service, you got to have a lot of cash in the bank to cover that in a, in a quick downturn like this. So I think um, it's tough time for doctors who weren't prepared. And I started getting calls from doctors who were saying, what do I do? And I began to look for a book I could turn them to. Okay, well, here's a roadmap for you to, to get yourself back out of this mess. And I couldn't find one. Uh, when I was initially looking, all of the books were about how to prepare for that event Mm. so that when it happens you're ready but there wasn't a book about well what happens when you find yourself in the middle of this financial crisis what do i do now and so that's when i got the idea well i can't find that book we need that book and so i decided to write that book (laughs) and uh from before sunup to after sundown i was working on that thing for two weeks Uh, navigating a financial crisis. You know, what do you do when you find yourself in this mess and now you got to get back out? Because it's not so simple as it just turns it back on. Right. I I interviewed one of my my partners who's still in practice about this and did a blog about it a couple months ago. What what was happening to him? And one of the key points was he's losing income now, but when you restart, not only do you have to, you know, meet your normal obligations, but now you got to make up for two months that you lost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is going to be difficult for renters. You know, you, you didn't, you couldn't pay your rent for two months and they've given you this, this leeway that you can't be evicted during this time. And, and now suddenly you got your job back 
but you owe two months back rent and you were barely getting by as it was. So the catch up is going to be a big problem. It's not like the financial crisis is over the moment they let you go back to work or they open up elective surgery again. Mm -hmm. uh, the crisis will extend for a long time for you because you have to catch up for the problem that the last couple of months has made. And, and that's why I ended up writing that book to help people get through that and fully recover and come out the other end in a better position than you were when this crisis hit. Cause now you've learned some lessons like I learned back then when I went six months with no pay. Well, I think it's, it's interesting, even, even in, in the dichotomy of the have nots, if you will, um, that there are those that are employed by hospitals that have still been getting paid. Perhaps they, they took a little bit of a pay cut. And then those in private practice that literally there's almost no paycheck coming in. Um, how would your advice to each of those two groups look like? Walk us through maybe an, an example or two for someone in those kind of situations. Well, let's talk about the employed position first. Um, that one's easier to deal with because uh, there's just one variable. You get a paycheck from your employer. And what's going to happen, I believe, in the next few months is hospitals, most of these people are employed by hospitals. And hospitals are losing money hand over fist right now. Yep. Um, elective surgery was their biggest cash cow. Yep. And that disappeared. So as they get started back up, they're going to have a huge deficit to make up. And everything they do is going to be more expensive than it was, but they won't get paid more for it. Because now uh, when I talked with my, my partner, he said every surgery takes an hour longer than it used to take because of all the precautions they now have to do with the um, preparing for treating everybody as if they have COVID-19 and um, run your OR that way. Uh, and all of the PPE uh, requirements that they'll have. So that means hospitals are going to be a whole lot less profitable. Well, if they're making less profit, they're not going to pay you the same thing they've been paying. So I think you better be preparing for a definite decrease in pay. Even if you're in the haves and you've been really busy, your hospital still isn't going to be making the money they were making before, and they're going to lower your salary. So I expect physicians' incomes to plummet uh, in the next few months. There's already, you know, unilaterally hospitals are canceling contracts and rewriting them for a lower pay. I don't know that they're commensurately lowering their CEO's pay, but the doctors are going to take a big hit. So I would say, what are you doing today to prepare yourself that next year your income might be only 60% of what it is this year? And if you're a physician who's been living paycheck to paycheck, you better start making some changes now because you don't want to be in that position uh, next year where you have to make changes. Uh, and that's what my book was all about is to, to get those changes to happen. And, and I, I coined a phrase in there, the, the golden week in, in trauma, we have the golden hour 
where the first hour after you've been injured, we have that long to really get you back to a normal position uh, physiologically or your cause of your, your death rate's going to skyrocket. And so I coined that for a financial crisis is the golden week. During the first week of your crisis is when you got to make all the changes so that things will last. Uh, I, I have an interview with somebody in the book uh, that had a six-month emergency fund, and he suddenly lost his job as a physician, and his emergency fund lasted three and a half months. Mm-hmm. He didn't make any changes. He didn't treat it like this was an emergency, like a major problem just happened. He just kept going on as normal, plus added in some things that the problem created, and he burned through his emergency fund super fast. What he needed to do was treat this like an emergency and the first week make cuts in his expenses so that his emergency fund could last him. Well, I think those doctors who are employed need to be making major cuts in their expenses right now because next year you're not going to make the money you made this year. So if we, if we could identify areas that are typical, obviously everyone's situation is different and everyone has, has different things going on. Let's say you're, you had the chance to speak with someone that is in that situation and um, they, they are making it month to month. What areas would you first be looking at to advise them on where to cut? Um, I would cut the biggest areas. Um, if you think about somebody's budget, where do you spend the most money? It's usually uh, housing and transportation and food. And for me, it's vacationing, <laughs> travel. Um, but you look at the areas where you're spending the most. Those are the areas you can have the most impact in making your change. Cutting out Netflix and saving a few dollars a month isn't going to have the impact you need when you're going to lose 40% of your income. Sure. Um, it may mean that what you need to do is to downsize your house. Mm-hmm. If, if you've been living, if you've been living on the edge as a physician, there's a lot of physicians who live paycheck to paycheck. They earn all this money and then they turn right around and spend it all. If that's the way you've been living, you're going to be in for a rude awakening next year when you get 40% less pay, which is just a prediction. I don't really have a crystal ball, but I, I kind of see that heading that direction. Um, Are you ready for that? And it may, it's going to take major cuts to take you down 40%. And it may mean that right now is the time for you to consider, if you've been living on the edge, you consider a, a smaller house. Um, a lot of doctors have huge houses, huge houses. Uh, I remember touring a, a doctor's house that was being built here in town while the house was being built. And we kind of walked in and was looking at at what they were building. And my wife made the comment, man, if we had this house, I'd need a riding vacuum cleaner. (laughs) It was huge, huge house. Those are not the kinds of things that are going to survive a 40% pay cut. So I would think about looking at your budget and looking at the big things uh, and preparing for what's going to come down the line. Now for the private practice doctor, I think they're going to get less of a cut because they're not dependent on the hospital's profits to make their pay. They're dependent on normal uh, traffic and they're not the ones that are going to have huge cost increase with the 
post-pandemic changes. The hospitals will have huge cost increase with that. But the doctor's office cost increase, I think, are going to be much smaller. So a private practice doctor, I think, is going to take uh, less of a hit um, because they won't have a huge increase of expenses. I think they're going to have to make up for their loss of not being open for a while. Um, some, you know, their and their accounts receivable are going to be slow to catch back up as well. So, uh, but they're going to take a hit, and I think we should be ready for it. I think this is the time right now. Wake up call for all you doctors. Start cutting back and tightening your belts so that you're ready for next year. There's a quote in one of my books that if you treat your life as if next year is going to be a bad year, then good or bad, you're going to have a good year next year. But if you treat your life as if next year is going to be a great year financially, then if it turns out bad, you're going under. So now's the time to treat your life as if next year is going to be a bad year financially for you and get ready for it. And if I'm wrong, you'll have a whole bunch of extra money next year. Yeah, <laughs> never, <laughs> never, never a bad deal. Um, so, so in the rest of, in, in the book, Corey, can you just kind of outline for us, what do you talk about in, in the book? How's it laid out? Um, what should people expect? Well, um, the first thing I, I go through is uh, hope. Uh, there's always hope. So remember, this is targeted for the person who's in crisis. They haven't collected income for a couple months now, and they're starting to really feel the pinch. Um, there's hope. Uh, other people have gone through such a thing and you're going to go through it too. The sun is still going to rise and next year you're still going to be here. You're still going to be working. Things are going to be different, but there's hope. This isn't going to be the end of it all. And then the next thing we talk about is assessing your condition. Exactly what is the position you're in right now? What do you have available to you? What kind of resources do you have retirement plan money you could tap into? Do you have home equity you could tap into? What, what resources do you have available to you? And the next thing is to stop the hemorrhage. Uh, stop hemorrhaging money. You've got to cut down your expenses because you don't have an income to cover them now, and you've got to make your emergency fund last. Uh, next concept is increasing your income. Now, we happen to live in a gig economy now, and everybody's talking about having a side gig. Uh, physicians, for the most part, thought they never needed such a thing because they make good money doing what they do. Mm -hmm. But suddenly, the, the concept of having a side gig uh, comes up. Uh, for me, having uh, real estate income on the side uh, really helped me in medicine. You know, if my medicine income stopped, that doesn't affect my real estate income. You know, so having alternative sources of income uh, is a really uh, good thing for you to do. And then I have one chapter called uh, Urgent Procrastination. Kind of sounds like oxymoron. <laughs> but these are the things that you've got to put off. Now is not the time to take your family to, to Disney World. Even if they're looking forward to it, uh, and even when Disney World opens back up, you may be struggling financially next year. And so don't blow part of your, your backup money going on things like that. So right now, procrastinate on a few things that uh, would cost you money. And then there's the concept of the emergency fund. How do you use your emergency fund? 
And like the doctor I talked about earlier, whose six-month emergency fund lasted three and a half months, you can't treat your emergency fund like it's just a paycheck replacement. So, oh, my paycheck stopped, so I'll just take the money from the emergency fund and keep doing what I've been doing. You can't use it like that. If you have a true emergency happening, you've got to make major cuts and find other sources of income. And where you fall short, your, your expenses didn't quite get down to your income, so you're short a little bit. That's what you use your emergency fund for, to cover that shortage where you're trying your best to fix it. Um, people don't tend to use their emergency fund like that. They just think about it as, oh, I'm just going to substitute for my paycheck and keep everything going the way it was. And they don't treat it like a true emergency and get ready. Um, and then I go through several things about how do you tap your retirement funds if you need to and how do you tap your home equity and wh what about the debt you've been dealing with. If you have a lot of debt, uh, now is not the time to be making extra payments on your debt. You should be holding that cash because cash is going to be king for you. So just back off to the regular payments or maybe even talk to them about getting some uh, forgiveness or some change in how the debt's handled. Fortunately for student loans, 0% um, interest and no payments for a little while, that's going to come in handy. Um, and then there's, you know, several more chapters. What about single people and married people? And what about when your job is your identity and you can never do it again? Yeah. Kind of like being retired. Mm -hmm. Some people got to have a nice um, preview of what retirement's going to be like. Because you were suddenly told to stay home. Yeah. And you can't go to work. And so suddenly a lot of doctors became retired. And look back at those, those times and see, what did you do with yourself? Is that what you want your retirement life to look like? You got a quick preview of what it could be like to be retired and not have to go to work. Did you do it well? Did you waste that time? Um, there's a lot of cool things you could have done with that time. It's projects around the house that you've been wanting to do, but you just didn't have the time for it. And now you're home. Hey, you can do those now. Did you do them or did you sit around watching CNN all day? <laughs> so let, let me, let me ask you this, Corey. I'm, I'm curious, you know, as, as uh, something that, that everyone knows that listens to this podcast I'm passionate about is, is side hustles. And you and I were talking about um, some, some of what's been, been happening there for me. Um, I'm curious to hear your take on, on um, you having done well in real estate there's there you often seems to be two camps there will be a camp of people which i would throw um someone like um physician on fire or generally the white coat investor into you know stash away as much into financial assets as you can and then there there's um and they might dabble in the real estate some but it's not a major focus for them and then there's the other camp that is like all real estate and because they they don't trust the financial assets for whatever reason, um, I'm curious to know how do you view that? Do you do you lean on one camp or another? Do a major mixture? You know, how would you define for for yourself what that looks like? Uh, I did both. Uh, I think it's part of being diversified. Um, if you put all of your eggs into the stock market, 
and the stock market crashes, uh, that's a pretty bad hit. If you put all of your eggs into real estate and then that, you know, like say in my hometown, uh, something happens and they, you know, the water system has lead in it and they have to shut down the whole town and everybody moves. Uh, suddenly you just lost all of that. Uh, so I think part of being diversified, uh, is that you should be doing both. And I have, uh, financial assets and I have real estate cash flow. And, and in my book, uh, uh, real estate investing for busy professionals is, is geared at creating cash flow for physicians. Um, because the cash flow will continue on for you when other things don't. And so for me in my retirement age, for instance, I am under 59 and a half and I take retirement money from my retirement account penalty free because there's ways to do that. Everybody talks about, well, you can't get the money until you're 59 and a half. Well, that's not true. Um, you just need to know how to get the money. Um, I had a blog written about how I did that. So every year I take a lump sum uh, out of my retirement plan and every month I get money deposited for my real estate. It turned out I didn't need to take any of the money from my retirement plans because the real estate was way more than I needed. But when I started, I wasn't sure how that would be as you first go into retirement and you've, you've never done it before. Uh, so I, I used both uh, coming in. Uh, and I, I think it's a mistake uh, to just lean on one of them. I think you should be involved in, in more than one source of income. Uh, I like the concept of the gig economy so that you've got another thing, you know, in my retirement, I started coaching people. So there was another little uh, gig that was producing some income. I started writing books and there's another little gig that produces uh, income. Uh, once the book's out, I keep getting paid when people buy one, Yeah, you know, all the effort goes in in the beginning and then from there on, you know, money comes in. So I think it's really important uh, for people to have those alternative sources of income. And I think for the first time, physicians are getting a wake up call that their job's not so secure that maybe they do need some alternative sources. But what I did throughout my career was I maxed out my retirement plan contributions and then the money above that, that I still want to invest, I invested in real estate. And that's kind of how I did it. Well, I think um, that's a great model to follow. And, and as I, as I reflect on my own situation, I think the, the golden key for all of it goes back to what you were saying earlier is of course you have to save more than you spend. And you can create this virtuous cycle rather than a vicious cycle. And I think obviously the more you can do, the more virtuous it can become. Um, but certainly there's something to be said for enjoying, enjoying life along the way. I'm curious as to, to your thoughts on, on the virtuous cycle. You know, what do you think it takes to, to do that, Corey, where someone could invest in real estate? Um, how much do you think that they need to ha be making uh, or saving above and beyond their living expenses to really get that started? Well, zero. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I detailed in my book, for instance, what I did. I bought all my property with no money down and cash back at closing. So I didn't come into the deal with any money when I, when I did that. Um, 
my son uh, did the same thing. He, he bought his first rental property just a few years ago uh, and he bought it, no money down. So you, you can do this with as little as zero. Uh, my grandparents is where I got my concept of real estate from and using real estate for cash flow for your retirement. My grandfather worked in the mill, uh, plywood mill, and my grandmother was a stay-at-home mom. And they would save up just a little bit of money and they'd make a down payment on a small house and it became a rental. And, and the, the, you know, over time, it becomes paid off. Uh, and, and I saw my grandmother with only a dozen houses never have to work uh, during her retirement era. Um, and so it doesn't take money to do this. Uh, it takes a desire to do this. And the more money that you put into it, probably the more secure it becomes and the better the cash flow becomes. But it doesn't, there's not an amount of money to say, you got to have this much to get started. Because you could get started in real estate uh, with tiny amounts. If you bought in, you know, some places you can buy a single family home for $50,000. Uh, so if you were putting, you know, 20% down, you're talking of only $10,000 to get started. Uh, other places, uh, you know, New York city, if you're going to try and get into that rental market, you may need a lot of money. Um, cause it might take a, you know, 50% down payment to get yourself into a positive cash flow. Sure. Sure. So it really depends on your market and what you're doing, but the amount of money you need goes from zero to infinity. <laughs> so I don't think there's a good hard, fast rule to say, this is what you need to be saving. The more, the better, because more money means more options. Right. So the bigger down payment you can make, the more of the properties that are out there will cash flow for you. Uh, the smaller your down payment, the fewer. So at 0% uh, down, um, there are a few properties that are going to cash flow for you. You go to 30% down, you just increase the number of options. But here's the thing I always thought about it. You don't need a bunch of options because you only want to buy one. So everybody gets into this thing about, you know, oh, there's, not, there's only 500 of these on the market. I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, you only needed one. There only needs to be one on the market. Uh, <laughs> you're not trying to buy all of them. You know, I got into buying uh, small apartment complexes. And I bought roughly one a year. Uh, you don't need to do this a lot. You don't need to do it all at once. You know, buy one piece of real estate now. Kind of get that one going. Wait a little bit. Feel it out. Make sure all is well. And then go hunting for the next one. And just do them one at a time. And it doesn't take a lot of money to do that. I love it. I love it. Well, Corey, we're... we're getting to the end of our time here. And as, as we think about everything that's been said today, 